So tonight we are asking an important question. What is the kingdom of God like? This is a question we've been asking over the last few Sunday evenings. We know it's a really important question because Jesus spent so much of his time talking about it when he was on earth. He even said the reason that he came was to proclaim the good news and the kingdom of God. He often used uh, stories, the stories that we call parables, to describe what the kingdom is like and who can enter it. And in tonight's story, we're going to see that this kingdom of God is an undeserved gift from a compassionate king. So let's just dive straight in, shall we? Our story is in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. If you want to turn to it in your Bibles, or it should come up on the screen as well. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, a denarius was just the sort of fair and standard pay for a laborer at that kind of time. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. What a strange story. The vineyard owner does some strange things. If, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for a while, you might have heard that parable before and it can become kind of run-of-the-mill. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard it. But let's not miss, this is a weird story. It's meant to be a weird story. Jesus was trying to capture attention. And then the vineyard owner does some weird things. It should make us ask, why did he do it like that? Why did he go out five times over the course of the day to get more people to come into the vineyard to work? Why didn't he just employ all the people he needed right at the start of the day? Why did he pay each group the same amount of money when some people had clearly worked a lot more than others? Why why did he insist on paying the last group, the group that worked for just one hour, before he paid the first group that worked all day long? Didn't he know that that would cause a scene? At best, I think his actions are surprising, and I don't know, you might even find them a little jarring. And it's no wonder that bits of this story seem strange to us. 
because we are so accustomed to the way that our world works. And Jesus' point is that the kingdom of heaven is not like this world. And if any of us wants to be a citizen of his kingdom, we need to change our thinking. So the first thing I think that we see in this parable is that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of compassion. One of the questions I asked just a second ago was, why does the master of the house go out five times to get more and more workers? He goes to get the first group of workers at dawn, and then he goes out again at 9 a.m. to to get some more, and then he treks out at lunchtime, and then at 3 p.m., and then at 5 p.m., literally an hour before it's about to get dark and work's about to finish. But that's, that's odd, right? So what's going on here? Has he massively underestimated the scale of the job that he needed doing? Is this just a panicked attempt to get everything done from, quite frankly, an incompetent vineyard owner? I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I think his actions are driven by something very different. Compassion. Compassion for the laborers desperately hoping to find work. And you know, at this time, and still in many parts of the world today, those without reliable work would gather at a particular point in the village market. Uh, If you were an employer, you were needing some casual laborers for the day, you'd know where to find them. It was, I guess, kind of like the job center, but a whole lot more public, and it came with no safety net whatsoever. You didn't get work, you didn't eat. And these were people living on the edge of survival desperate for the chance to earn some money to take back to their families. And not only did they face hunger, if they couldn't find work, they also faced humiliation because they would be left standing there unwanted in full view of everyone that they knew. Now, when the master went to pick up the first group of workers at the start of the day, he must have seen a big crowd of people hopeful for uh, work, hopeful that they would find what they needed. And when he returned at 9 a.m., he saw that most of them were still there. They were still waiting. Notice here in the parable that it doesn't even say he was looking for workers at that point. It just says he saw others standing there. Now, I think we can only assume that he thought to himself, I think I'm sure I could find some work for those guys. Then over the course of the day, his concern for the remaining ones builds and it keeps him coming back and back to that corner of the market. He takes another group and then another. And finally, at the end of the day, he's amazed to find this small remnant steadfastly waiting, hoping against hope. I mean, nobody's still standing there at 5 p.m. hoping for work, right? But these guys are. And and, and he goes up to them, he says, "Why, why are you still here? because no one's hired us. Okay, he says, come with me. Now, of course, the vineyard owner in this story represents God, the true owner of everything. And as desperate as the plight of the workers in this story is, it is nothing compared to the plight of human beings, the plight of the human situation without God. The Bible says, without God, we are dead cut off from the one who created us, trapped in sin and heading for hell. But God knows we need saving. He knows that we need help. 
And again and again in the Bible, God shows and tells of his compassion for the lost. Psalm 103 says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. If you need a savior this evening, if you know that you need God to have compassion on you and to take you in, then you can ask him. You can be confident that the God of all compassion will not ignore you. And it gets better because God doesn't just send help from afar. He comes into your life, into your mess, and he fixes things from the inside. Take a look at the story again, if you've got it open in front of you. The master goes to get the workers himself. Now, this bit of the story, this would have really jumped out to Jesus' original listeners because they knew that rich landowners didn't go to the market to hire laborers themselves. They had people to do stuff like that for them. Even in this story about halfway through, we discover that the master does indeed have a foreman. Surely he should have sent him to traipse along the road five times in the heat of the day to get more and more workers, but he didn't. His compassion for the laborers led him to go himself, just like God came for us himself in the person of Jesus. He gave himself for us on the cross, dying in our place that we might no longer be separated from God. Maybe some of you here tonight haven't put your trust in Jesus yet. And maybe you feel like some of the workers in the story, like you're just standing around in life, knowing that you need help or that, need to find the answers somehow, but hopefully they'll present themselves. Hopefully you'll be able to figure it out. But Jesus is reaching out his hand to you tonight. He's saying, I am the answer that you need. I am the savior that you need. Come with me, trust in me. I am the way, the truth and the life. Come with me. Others of you uh, know and love Jesus, but you're facing difficult circumstances in your life. And God just really wants you to know tonight that he cares. He cares really deeply about what it is that you're facing. And he wants you to know that he will never leave you or forsake you. Remember, he's not a distant God throwing us a life raft when we get into trouble. He's a God who comes into our trouble. He meets us exactly where we are in the midst of our circumstances. And he will see you through. And for others here tonight, I think God really wants to remind you through the parable of his heart for the, the downtrodden and the ignored and the oppressed. It reminds us that, uh, the story reminds us that his is a kingdom where the last shall be first. What an amazing statement that is. And where the marginalized of the world will be given the place of honor. And I think there's some people here that God's really done that in your heart in the past. He's really um, given you his heart for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And, and you've kind of been running with that and enthused to, to go and help people like that in the past. But you've just kind of gone off the boil a little bit and the busyness of life has come in and you've just forgotten how important this is for God. And I really think God wants to recommission some of you here tonight recommission you to, to, to get up again, to pick this, this burden of you like up again and to, to be God's hands and feet and to help the marginalized, to help the oppressed, to extend God's love to the broken people around you. So this is a kingdom of compassion ruled by the king of compassion himself.
The second point I want to make is this is a kingdom of grace. Grace is undeserved favor given to us by God. Every Christian in this room here this evening is a Christian by the grace of God, not because of what you have done, not because of what you have deserved. It is all by grace. Uh, The Greek word in the New Testament that we translate as grace, charis, can literally mean gift. We heard a little bit about that this morning from charis. You know, in tonight's story that we just read, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of heaven is a gift from the start to the finish. Now, for most workers in our story, the amazing, extravagant grace of the master was really obvious. Can you imagine the reaction of the people who worked for just one hour when they were given a whole day's pay? And that I guess most of the other groups were pretty similar. I'm sure they, uh, you know, I know they, they worked for a bit more than one hour, but they still got way more than they were hoping for or even expecting. It's interesting when the master picked them up from the market, these other groups, he didn't say what they would get paid. He guaranteed the first group that they would get paid a denarius. But when he goes to the other groups, he actually doesn't say what they would get paid. He just says, I'll pay you whatever is right. And so when they go with him, they're going with him on trust. And I bet they were glad they trusted him when they saw his generosity. So everyone's filled with joy and gratitude in the story, all except the first group. Why? Their payment was exactly as promised, and it was fair payment. This isn't a story about anyone getting underpaid. Don't get it wrong. You could even argue, I think, that the first group got the best deal of the day. They weren't left at the marketplace to wait and hope. They didn't have to deal with any uncertainty or any ongoing humiliation or anxiety. Are we going to have what we need at the end of this day? They didn't have to put up with any of that. And at the start of the day, they were just as desperate and in need of work as anyone else. And they were really blessed to be chosen first. What a blessing that was for them. But they fell into that trap of comparing themselves to other people and Because of that, they convinced themselves that they'd earned their way to more than they received. And completely forgotten that this job, to have this job in the first place, was a gift. And to work for the master was a privilege. So they had no joy at their reward. How do we lose the joy of our salvation? We forget that it's a gift that we never deserved and we certainly didn't earn as soon as we slip into seeing our standing before God as reward for our hard work in his service, we've just gone horribly wrong. You know, God doesn't need us to do his bidding. He saves us and then gives us purpose for our own good, not for his. Our salvation is a free gift. And then anything that God gives us to do in service of him is also a gift. Even the ability to serve God with your talents or your, uh, I don't know, physical capability, mental aptitude, whatever it is, all these things are given to you by God in the first place. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a great preacher in the 1800s, said it like this. Both the service and the reward are all of grace. God gives us good works and then rewards us for the works which he himself has given. So all is of grace from first to last. Everything that you have 
Everything that you are, everything is given to you by God. He gave you existence itself. He gave you that next breath that's in your lungs. He gave you your family and your home and your job and your friends and your church. And most importantly, he gave you salvation through his son. Paul writes to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? All these things are God's grace gifts to you, given to you just because he loves you. For no other reason, just because he loves you. And therefore, the only right response to that is just gratitude and worship. just want to make uh, one more point in this, uh, in this point too. Why did the master insist on paying the last group first in full view of others? Like he, he easily could have paid the first group, the denarius, and then sent them on their way and they would have been really happy and they would have been none the wiser that anyone else got paid the denarius which made them really raging. But he didn't do that. I think one important reason is that this, this kingdom, this is a kingdom where God's grace is on display. It's on display for all to see. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. And when we see grace poured out to other people, it can expose self-righteousness in our hearts. I think grace infuriates those that don't see a need for it. I was chatting to a friend in, in the pub once about um, what Christians believe, and I was trying to explain grace to him. He's not a believer, he doesn't believe in God. And I was trying to explain this, this free gift of grace that any of us, anyone can be forgiven. That actually, we're not Christians because we're good people. That actually, that's irrelevant to the, the equation of whether, what our standing with God is. And like, it really wound him up. <laughs> it really wound him up because he was like, that's just not right. That's just not right. I, I try and be a good person. I slave away trying to be a good person. So grace really infuriates people that, that don't see the need for it. But I think when we have a clear perspective on ourselves and that all those efforts to be a good person, they weren't going to be good enough. <laughs> they aren't good enough. When we see that clearly, we, we understand the extent of our own need for the grace of God. And when that happens, when we see it happening to other people, it's just cause for celebration. It doesn't make us jealous. It's cause for celebration and it brings us fresh joy in our own salvation. So how do you feel when you see God blessing those around you? When you see him loving the unlovable? Does it make you feel like the first group of workers focusing on what you think you're owed because of what you've done for him? Or does it remind you of the goodness of God in your life? I believe God wants to give each of us a fresh understanding of his grace for us tonight. He wants to renew your joy and your salvation if you're a follower of Jesus tonight. Because his kingdom is a kingdom of grace from first to last. And I'm almost done. And my final point, it might sound like I'm stating the obvious, but I do think there's something really important for, for us here for us to grasp tonight. It's that this is Jesus' kingdom and not ours. And that means that he is in charge. 
Some characters in this story find the master's way of doing things jarring, as I said earlier, and it becomes a real problem for them. As I was preparing for this, I really felt God wanted to highlight to us the vineyard owner's response. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? All things belong to God. And I think he wants to gently, but firmly remind us as his children tonight that he is God and we are not. Hannah said uh, last week when she was preaching to us that we have a tendency to live our life like it's our own little kingdom. The truth is, if, if you follow Jesus, you don't get to be king or queen anymore. God's kingdom is really unlike this world, as I said at the start. And the problem is that so much of our habitual thinking about the way things should be are just conditioned by the culture that we live in. All the voices that are coming at us all the time, every day. And therefore, there will be times when God does things in ways that we don't understand or says things in his word that we are uncomfortable with or maybe withholds things from us that we think we deserve. But the Bible's littered with reminders that God, he doesn't always owe us an explanation because he is God. He just asks us to follow him and trust him. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, by all means, wrestle with God in prayer. Do your best to seek God and know him. After all, he's given us a whole book to help us with that. He's given us his Holy Spirit who lives in us. But remember as well, that we, we've got to approach God at all times with humility. You know, at times following Jesus will mean that we have to lay down our right to understand everything about him and his ways. Just like the people in the story, that was, that was the challenge for them. Some things, I guess, may remain a mystery to us until we get to see God face to face in eternity. Before we start expecting him to play by our rules, let's remember it is his kingdom. His ways are not our ways. And I am so glad that they are not. Thank goodness God does things his way. Because as we've seen in this parable, he is so much more generous and kind than we can get our heads around. And he cares deeply about what is good for us. We can always trust in his goodness. Even in those moments of discomfort and confusion, we can always trust in his absolute perfection and goodness. His kingdom is one of compassion and endless grace. And he is on the throne.